If you will, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We continue walking through the book of Ecclesiastes verse by verse. This morning's sermon is Wealth's Dead End, Ecclesiastes 5. We're going to look at verses 8 through 20. Our key words for our worshipers in training are wealth, joy, and possessions. Now, if you've been with us through this entire series in Ecclesiastes, uh, there may be a tendency for you at this point to say, I've got it. I've heard it. Let's move on. Uh, because there is somewhat of a repetitive nature to some of what Solomon is writing. But Solomon is going to now address what we're uh, going to feel like he already hit on. Uh, It's a challenge for us to not sort of turn this off, but to hear this through. So uh, let us all be praying through this morning that God sufficiently challenges us uh, in this area of importance in our lives. So what are we talking about? Well, the very thing we all love to talk about, our money. (laughs) Why we have it, what we do with it, and what it does to us. So our goal is not to try and get in your wallet today. Uh, but to take a serious look at the text and be challenged by what God has in His Word for us. So as we're thinking about the text, uh, as I was studying, as I was preparing, I remembered uh, in 2008 about the German billionaire. His name was Adolf Merkel. He was ranked as the 94th richest person in the world. He had a net worth of about $9.2 billion dollars. That's a few pennies. Now, less than a year later, he had a bad investment with Volkswagen. It caused him to lose about $535 million. So at 74 years old, what did Merkel do? He killed himself. (laughs) He jumped in front of a train and ended his life. Now, I realized that there were other factors involved to include investors and loans and all of these things that are tied up into that much money. And I don't understand all the ins and outs of financial issues with having to deal with $9.2 billion and then to lose $535 million. But simple math, which is all I really have to work with, lands him at about $8.7 billion dollars. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and just say that even if he lost $5 billion, he's still sitting on about $4 billion. So no matter how you slice it on the surface, I have a hard time understanding why a loss which, compared to your overall worth, is relatively small. And that would lead a guy to jump in front of a train. It was that which Solomon turns to. The empty, purposeless life and the hollow, dry religion that we've already looked, like, looked at. Solomon naturally is going to turn, I think, to the love of money. We've established with Solomon that all men everywhere seek their own pleasure. We all pursue joy. It's just a matter of where we pursue it. 
So no matter who you are or what you believe, you are going to spend your life asking the question, why are we here? What is our purpose? This is the question that Solomon has sought to answer throughout the book. And the answers to these questions, as we've seen, in the methodical life of Solomon can easily become the subject of delusion and meaninglessness under the sun. Now, we've seen the... Uh, we've seen the many ways that Solomon sought to find meaning, the ways he sought to find satisfaction. Parties, wine, women, luxury, laziness, labor, houses, vineyards, laughter, education. He tried it all, and all to no avail. Remember, Solomon is the richest man to have ever lived. And yet, he found that satisfaction in this life under the sun is something that money cannot buy. You may have heard that America's first billionaire, John D. Rockefeller, still considered one of the richest persons in modern history, he's famously quoted as saying when a reporter asked him, how much money is enough? His response just a little bit more. And so it is with most people who live under the sun, especially those who live lives of affluence. Interestingly, we set our hearts and our lives to earning and getting more for the sake of happiness. And Solomon's going to very clearly point out to us Having more sometimes does the very opposite of bringing us joy. There's been some remarkable research done between the world's richest people and the world's poorest people. Forbes' 400 richest people were surveyed. They were given this survey and their satisfaction in life was compared to individuals surveyed in uh, of the Maasai people of Kenya and the... Uh, unto it people of northern Greenland. These are people who live on less than $1 a day and have no electricity and no running water. So compare the richest to the poorest. The results were that their satisfaction was rated at the same exact level. It didn't matter. Richest in the world, poorest in the world, the satisfaction level was exactly the same. It's amazing, isn't it? So we're going to look at Solomon's wisdom here to see how he confronts this false notion that wealth in and of itself is meaningful and gives us purpose, as though it's a real answer to life's problems. Now, lest we think the issue of money is not very much of a big deal, we need to consider a very brief survey of the gospel accounts alone. Jesus' words. The issue of money in the Bible is not a side issue. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Treasure Principle, he wrote this, 15% of everything Christ said relates to money, more than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. Listen to a few of Jesus' statements. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. You lack one thing. Go, uh, Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Luke 6, 20 and 24. Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. Luke 14, 33. Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
Luke 18:25 It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 12:15 One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Matthew 6:33 Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Luke 12:33 Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags in the heavens. Luke 19:8 through 9 Zacchaeus said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. And Matthew 13:44 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Luke 21, verses 2 and 3. Jesus saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and say, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Luke 12, 20 and 21. But God said to them, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And Luke nine fifty eight and 59. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Follow me. Now, look, this is only a small sampling of three books of the Bible. Money is a big deal in the Bible. But our culture of materialism and debt and consumption has always had a hard time looking objectively at the Bible's teaching about money and possessions. And every one of us, and I'll say up front, myself foremost, have been influenced by this. So let's begin looking at what Solomon has to say to us about this. Look in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at this matter. For the high official is watching by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So Solomon begins with the reality that often the rich get richer and the poor poorer. It's not uncommon in our day to hear the debate between who is really the evil party, the rich or the poor. It must be the rich who use their wealth to oppress the poor and influence others for their own purposes. No, certainly it couldn't be. It must be the poor who have very little to offer society and they beg, steal, and borrow with no intention of working or paying it back. And while this debate will always be raging back and forth, the reality is that the Bible doesn't really focus on whether or not you're rich or poor financially, but rather spiritually. In other words, are you living according to the righteousness of Christ, or are you living according to the perceived self-worth of what you think your financial assets might prove about you? It's not good to be rich or poor. It's good to be holy. We will see at the end of the passage, Solomon doesn't make the argument of wealth being in and of itself evil or wrong. God is not against you having money or things. God is against money and things having you. And therein lies the danger. The more you have, the more susceptible you are to being owned by it. 
So Solomon addresses the issue of seeing the poor oppressed while the bureaucracy and the judiciary turn a blind eye to all of it. And what does Solomon tell us? Do not be amazed at this matter. Indeed. It takes a certain kind of mind to think that the, that world peace will just happen if we all hold hands and think happy thoughts. Arms are for hugging and visualizing world peace is thought by some to be having quite an impact on our culture. But look around. Look at the newspaper. Why is it that the money for humanitarian aid given from one nation to another has very little actual humanitarian aid for the people it's intended to go to? Corruption? A violation of justice, the use of power to oppress the poor and gain a greater place of influence. Men are oppressed all the time, and the problem goes all the way up. But also remember, as Solomon points to, the king is dependent upon agriculture as anyone else. We're all in this together. So it's almost as if Solomon looks to those who are surprised that this happens or are shocked in some way. They're appalled when corruption is present all around them. And he's saying to them, seriously? You see the condition of man. You see all of the evil of his heart and his clamoring for power. And you are surprised that people are oppressed? Wake up. It's all around, and it's not going away anytime soon. This was in Solomon's day, several thousand years ago. So we see, culturally, some men will gravitate to the seat of political power, only to be disillusioned with the shocking avarice that they find there. Many others make themselves right at home in the corruption, and in fact, the only way they get there is through that corruption. So Solomon seems to point to the reality that wise men get this. The wise understand this to be the case, and they don't grow bitter over it, but accept it for what it is and strive for a much more excellent way, understanding the purpose behind these things. It is inevitable that ungodly men will use positions of power to assist themselves, to assist their friends, to have more power, more money, more assets, and more influence. It's inevitable. So the principle that is loud and clear here is that if you're looking for hope, if you're looking for change, do you really want to look to the government and political systems? I don't think so. The king is not part of the solution. Most of the time, the king is part of the problem. So often, they claim the profits of the land for whom? Themselves. Transformation is not the power of a system of government. It is the power of the gospel to change hearts. So this is the issue of wealth and poverty on the national scale. But we get to verse 10, and Solomon brings it to the heart, to the personal level with which each of us must grapple. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This is a well-known truth that Solomon states here as a proverb. 
for those of us who have ever sought to find satisfaction in money or possessions, we quickly realize that we will never have enough. We will always want more. And while at varying degrees, I think it's nearly impossible for Americans especially to escape what uh, one author, Jesse O'Neill, has coined uh, the phrase affluenza. This is a conflation of two words, affluent and influenza, the flu. Affluenza, it's a deadly disease. It's an unhealthy relationship with money and the pursuit of wealth. If we're honest, I hope we can admit that even if we're thankful for what we have, we often think about the things that we don't have and how to get them. How else might we explain the the sudden pang of discontent we feel when we realize that we can't afford something we want to buy? Or the guilt we feel when we buy it anyway? And now we're in debt as a result. Our appetite for what money can buy is never satisfied. Ever. And I will be the first to admit this in my own life. The allure of newness. The allure of novelty. I have sought after and loved shiny objects as much as any other man. And in the end have found it to be lacking in its ability to bring satisfaction. It's never as great as I thought it would be. It never offers all that I thought it would. It fades. It breaks. It becomes yesterday's model. I have justified poor stewardship in my life for the sake of instant gratification. Only to be reminded that the saying is true. Money can't buy happiness and you can't take it with you. Those who love silver and gold are sleeping with false lovers who cannot bring satisfaction. Now we may, every now and then, find ourselves able to truly say, money doesn't really mean all that much to me at all. It's only a necessity, but nothing more. But it doesn't take long for us to be singing a new song. A song like the Beatles sang. Money don't get everything, it's true. What it don't get, I can't use. Now, give me that money, that's what I want. The Apostle Paul provides us with a striking and challenging word in 1 Timothy 6. There is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Brothers and sisters, this is the warning of Scripture. Do not desire to be rich. If it comes, it comes. But hold on to it loosely. And do not let it be your desire, your pursuit, your purpose in life, your meaning. 
And Solomon's going to give us reasons why living for money is meaningless. It's futile. It is deadly. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? An increase in wealth, an increase in possessions, brings with it an increase in what? Taxes, accountants, lawyers, staff, managers, consultants. And all of them have a hungry look in their eye. So the first problem that Solomon points out with money is that others will try to take it from us. The more we have, the more others try to get it. Consider the story of William Post. He won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania State Lottery. As soon as he won, an ex-girlfriend sued him for a share of his winnings, and she won. His own brother hired a hitman to kill him, hoping to inherit some of the winnings. And other relatives bugged him constantly for money. And with one year, within one year of winning, he was a million dollars in debt, filed for bankruptcy, and now lives on food stamps and $400, $450 a month as a stipend. And sadly, for those who get rich quick, the scenario is all too common. A University of Kentucky study showed that lottery winners are two times more likely to file bankruptcy than the average American. Amazing, isn't it? So no matter who it is, the more we have, the more others will try to get it. And certainly, as we've looked at the life of King Solomon, no one knew this better than him. The richest man in the world, but given the many thousands that he entertained day in and day out, he almost needed to be. As others clamor for our riches more and more, we enjoy it ourselves less and less. And we may see it, but so often it's gone before it ever gets used. Solomon says, this is vanity. This is meaningless. A second problem Solomon points out with having more money is that it will keep us awake at night. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will let him, uh, excuse me, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Blue-collar workers, electricians, plumbers, ditch diggers, roofers, mechanics, he's talking about you. The sleep of a laborer is sweet. Those who are consumed by wealth can't sleep at night because they're up thinking about investment strategies, their companies, perhaps their stock portfolios, debts, lawsuits, competitors. But a righteous laborer who loves the Lord sleeps well. He works hard, he punches the clock, he does his job And if he's striving for holiness and seeks to love the Lord with all of his life, he sleeps well. And that's something money can't buy. A good night's rest, which is tied to a clear conscience. I think it's funny how Solomon points out the plight of a wealthy man. Why can't he sleep, according to verse 12? Indigestion. (laughs) A rich diet of fatty foods is what he's referring to here. He might not go to bed hungry like the laborer, but he's going to bed on an unsettled stomach. Stress and rich foods 
have his intestines all tied up in knots. He can't sleep at night. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, and he has nothing in his hand. The third reason that Solomon gives as to why living for money is meaningless is that it may be here today, but it will be gone tomorrow. He calls this a grievous evil, which literally means that he is sick to think about it. Solomon illustrates this by presenting a man who was wealthy and who sought to hoard and gain more and more and more. But he got involved in a bad investment, and in the end, he lost it all. It seems telling to me that in our culture of affluence and prosperity, we have entire cities primarily dedicated to the so-called entertainment of gambling. Despite the ridiculous odds, billions of dollars are spent each year in casinos, on lottery tickets, on postage for the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. Risky investments are made on Wall Street with the hopes of hitting it big, and yet more often than not, the losses come. Gambles are taken. Men end up destitute as a result. Even worse, the man Solomon points to was a father and has now left nothing for his son. It seems as though Solomon is assuming the principle of Proverbs 13.22, and it's important, and it's wise, and it's godly. Proverbs 13.22, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Parents have an obligation to save and sacrifice for their children and their children's children. And yet this does not mean that hoarding and hoping to hit it big should be our focus. Solomon's point is that counting on money to bring peace and satisfaction is vanity. It's striving after the wind, as he said time and again. There's a fine line between saving and hoarding. The Bible points to the difference being found in what the purpose of the wealth itself is. Why does God prosper his people financially? So that we might, from our bounty, meet the needs of the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the ongoing work of the ministry through God's appointed means, the local church. It is through our prosperity that we have the appropriate resources to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. Money and goods are God's gifts and provision for our sustenance and our enjoyment, but never to be forgotten is that the majority of our brothers and sisters in the world will go days without food and may never drink clean water. Biblical saving is not a means in itself but a means toward a loving, outward-reaching end to provide real needs for real people. So what might this look like? How do we look at this practically and see it at work in our midst? I want to give you a few examples. Perhaps for some of you, as you grow older, 
You may be empty nesters. It might look like rejecting the frivolous pursuits of American dream-like retirement to commit the latter part of your life to the purpose of global frontier missions. Knowing that we have a satisfaction and a joy in the everlasting inheritance of God in only a few short years. That makes us zealous in our hearts to pursue the kingdom, not the accumulation of earthly comforts. Perhaps it might be using some of your resources and time to adopt one of the 150 million orphans in the world to provide a more stable and lasting hope in this life. Knowing that you are showing the tangible results of our vertical adoption in Christ. Perhaps it's helping others who are striving to do this, knowing that it is a worthy biblical pursuit that unfortunately costs a lot of money. It could be cashing in a portion of your retirement to meet the needs of a brother or sister in Christ, helping them to get on their feet, helping them educate their children, or make sure they have food on the table tonight. Maybe it's downsizing and adjusting your lifestyle so your resources are more freed up to utilize for the advancement of the kingdom. Or perhaps the Lord has continuously impressed upon you a desire for a specific ministry venture that you've been reluctant to begin because of the cost involved. Perhaps it's time to press forward. I could give you a thousand examples, but here's the bottom line. The Lord does everything that He does with a purpose, and it all belongs to Him. How can we be the best managers of what God has given us to bring glory to Him? I think that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. A question we need to sit down with our spouse and work through. A question we need to be asking ourselves as a local church. How can we be the best managers of what God has given us to bring glory to Him? It takes time and it takes discipline to get there. But these are very important pursuits for the kingdom of God and we should be engaging ourselves and finding ways to elevate Christ in our expenditures. There's a little booklet called In God We Trust. What is God saying in the midst of this financial crisis? It's written by Michael Haken. It came out about two years ago in the midst of everything crashing. In it, he wrote some very compelling words. He wrote this, In such times as these, it would be so easy and so natural to keep to ourselves what financial resources we have left. While provision needs to be made for our own families, times like these call for open hands and generosity on the part of those who call Christ Lord. The words of the Apostle Paul are as germane as ever. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Solomon continues his illustration of this man. Look to verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? These words are similar to what we read in the book of Job. When he lost all that he had, he responds, Naked I came from my mother's womb, 
and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. One day, all of our labors will be lost. We must face this reality. This is something Solomon has now addressed twice, namely our own mortality. When we die, it's not going with us. So it seems wise that we would travel light and that we would hold on to things loosely. It's easier said than done. I know, I'm with you. But a rightly oriented heart treasures not those things that can be destroyed by moth and rust or taken by thieves, but that which is eternal and lasting and fulfilling in the end. The best book, the greatest book, hands down, that I've ever read on biblical understanding of money and stuff is by Randy Alcorn, and it's called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. I recommend everybody reading it. It is the most comprehensive work I've found with solid biblical teaching on this subject. In this book, Alcorn uses this passage uh, from Ecclesiastes to give us a laser-like focus on what Solomon is pointing out. I'll just mention the verse and what he says about each one. Verse 10, the more you have, the more you want. And the more you have, the less you're satisfied. Verse 11, the more you have, the more people, including the government, will come after it. And the more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. Verse 12, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. Verse 13, the more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Verse 14, the more you have, the more you have to lose. And verse 15, the more you have, the more you'll leave behind. Take a good summary of these verses. And Solomon summarizes the many reasons not to live our lives for money in verse 17. He writes, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. It's a pathetic picture, isn't it? This is where greed will lead us. It leaves us empty and broken and miserable. A few quotes from some of our country's richest men. Already mentioned, oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller. I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. William Vanderbilt inherited $100 million in the 1800s from his railroad mogul father, Cornelius. He said, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, he was a prominent German-American fur trader in the 1700s. He was worth millions of dollars. He said, I am the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, father of the Ford Motor Company. I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie, leader of the U.S. steel industry. Millionaires seldom smile. So we see in their very lives, in the quotes that they have offered to us, this very principle that Solomon has laid out for us. Ditch diggers, Solomon tells us, sleep better than the anxiety-ridden rich. A rich man who is a fool is destroyed by his own blessing. And if that rich man has a child, he will be born naked, the same condition his father will be in when he is born into the next world. A man arrives without possessions, and he leaves without possessions. And in the interval, while he does have all of his stuff, he cannot sleep because he worries about it. What a deal! 
But if he works hard and frets and worries a whole lot, he can make sure that his fine clothes for the short time that he does have them are nothing but nice wrapping paper for the ulcers of his body. So the exhortation is plain. Reject the idiocy of greed. Now again, please be reminded that the Bible does not speak against wealth in and of itself. The Bible is speaking against greed. A heart that desires to find purpose and pleasure in money and possessions. And yet as soon as I say that, if your heart is anything like mine, it's quick to dull the sting of reality. It's quick to justify what may actually be greed and call it something else altogether, right? So let's hurry and get to Solomon's conclusion. Look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given me, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Praise God that there is a better way to live. In these final verses, Solomon exhorts us, hear this. This is what you need to grasp. This is the way to life. This is the way to joy. This is the way to rest. I love where Solomon goes with this. Hey, you're working hard. You're getting great returns. Why not enjoy it? Why not pursue God and pursue community and eat good food and drink good drinks and delight in what God has given you? Do you really want to give that up for a few more hours at the office? You want to enjoy life, right? Do something with your expensive pots and pans and don't make bedfellows with your credit cards. Eat, drink, work hard and keep your heart from greed. Enjoy life. Sharing in the joy of a meal with community and working hard when it's business time are things that Christians who enjoy life do. Why? Because we love the Lord and we accept our lot in life. And yes, this is a part, a very important part of the Christian life and the work of the ministry, a very important part. So Solomon's warning to us is that we will miss what God has blessed us with if we are always busy trying to get something that's not ours or to be someone that we're not. There's a myth in our culture that if you try hard enough, you can do anything and be anyone. That's a lie. We're all told that in elementary school And it's a lie. Look at me. I cannot do anything that I want to do. I cannot play in the NBA. I have a three-inch vertical, and I close my eyes half the time when I'm going in for a layup so someone doesn't knock out my contact. I cannot be a math teacher. I took college algebra three times. The last time I took it pass-fail... And I had a nice teacher that was worried about my mental health if I failed again. I cannot be a male supermodel. Okay, well, I think I probably could, but I won't be. 
there's a lot of things that I can't do. I need to accept my lot in life. I need to embrace who God has made me to be with the gifts that God has given me. And I need to serve the Lord. That's what we need. We need to accept life. And in doing so, we find liberation. Some people are striving so hard to be what mom or dad wanted them to be. But they're not that. They're just not that. Accept your life as God has given, to, given it to you. And you may say, well, this is just who I am. I like working with my hands. I'm going to be a laborer. Or I like working with my mind. I'm going to be a software engineer. Great. Love Jesus. Work hard. Eat, drink, and rest well. Listen, it's not about being rich or being poor. And to be clear, every one of us in this room is very rich. It's not about class. It's not about being upper class, middle class, or lower class. It's about loving Jesus and striving for holiness. Eating, drinking, and working a job. So many Christians feel like they're junior varsity if they're not in full-time ministry. Listen, all of you, every single one of you is in full-time ministry. You go out there and you work for Jesus as plumbers, as airplane mechanics, as carpenters, as home builders, as homemakers, as teachers, engineers, clerks. Whatever it is that you do as a Christian, you are in full-time ministry. Whatever your lot is, accept that the Lord has given you purpose, even though it may not look like $100,000 a year in income. Be thankful for what you have. If you're healthy, if you're sick, if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're smart, if you're average, blue collar, white collar, accept your lot. And this is the beautiful thing in living in Christ because we find in our culture and in our economy is that your value is tied to your position and your income. That's why when people meet you, they so quickly ask, so what do you do for a living? They're trying to put you on the food chain to find your slot in there. Plankton, alpha male, where do I fit in there? In the kingdom of God, we don't measure that way. We score Christian, non-Christian, wise, fool, loving and walking with Christ or not. So what we care about is, do you love Jesus? Do you walk with Jesus? Do you serve Jesus? When I hang out with you, do I see someone who reminds me of Jesus? That's how we evaluate. And I hope for all of us, if it came down to a place where we needed counsel in our lives, where we needed wisdom, we needed some sort of teaching, it would have very little to do with someone's socioeconomic background. It would have much more to do with the quality of their character, the content of their life and whether or not they look like Jesus. So here's the deal, and we're done. The pursuit of wealth for the sake of wealth is a dead end. It's vicious. It's relentless. It's painful. Greed is a deadly disease, and it ravages our joy. It ravages our purpose in life. And to set our hearts on earthly riches not only deprives God of His glory, but it also deprives others of blessing, 
deprives ourselves of sweet, of sweet rest and reward. It also destines us for perpetual anxiety and insecurity. Materialism has no upside. Paul reminds us that the rich should now put their hope, uh, should not put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but in God who richly provides. The more we have, the more we have to worry about. Listen, we have a great church. I thought about that again yesterday during our inquirers class. We have a great church, but we cannot enjoy one another unless God enables us to do so. I have the scriptures, but I cannot enjoy them unless God enables me to do so. I have friends, but I cannot enjoy them unless God enables me to do so. I have a great job working for the church, but I can't enjoy it unless God enables me to do so. My life is filled with God's provision. And I can't enjoy that provision unless God enables me to do so. And people who don't understand that, they think it's going to be happiness by addition. More and more and more stuff. Different wife, different husband, different car, different kids, different house, different income, different place on the food chain. Something out there, if I add that to my life, things will be greater. No. God enables you to enjoy your life as it is. How? Good question. We will only be able to enjoy life when we enjoy God as God. In his great love and mercy, God has given himself to us. He has given us the greatest good, namely himself. He is the greatest being. He is the greatest of all treasures. But God with us is not enough because you and I were born and conceived in sin. It is only by the work of the gospel in our hearts to transform us and give us new affections that our hope and our desire and our trust turns from the things of this world to the work and the power of Christ. It is only by Christ coming and living a perfect life and dying a sinless death on our behalf that our sins were placed on Him and His righteousness has been given to us that we can walk in life and enjoy it for all that it is. Not because of what we accomplish, not because of what we're worth or what we find in this world, because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has accomplished. And as we place our delight in Him, as we trust in Him, as we find our hope in Him, no matter our lot in life, we find joy, we find satisfaction, we find peace and contentment because our lives are not pursuing things in this world that fade away, that get eaten, that rust, that get destroyed. But in the eternal love, mercy, grace, and care of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we enjoy life? It's rooted in Christ. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot love both God and money. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will love the one and hate the other. Repent. 
Repent of greed. Run to Christ. Find pleasure in Christ. He won't crash. He won't wither. He won't fade. He won't leave you at a place where you want more of the world. He is not a dead end. He's the only way to truth. He's the only way to life. Run to Jesus. Love Jesus and find your joy and satisfaction in this life in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us a greater hope beyond what we earn in our work, in our labors, beyond whatever our paycheck says. Thank you for giving us Christ that we need not toil in this life for something that we are seeking to find satisfaction in. But rather we are thankful for what we are given, the ways that you bless us, whether we are rich or poor. Because our meaning, our purpose, and our joy is not found in this life. But in Christ. Life in Christ. Not in this world. Not in our stuff. But in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. That we need not be anxious. That we need not worry about what tomorrow brings. But that we can rest knowing that our Heavenly Father loves us. That He cares for us. That He knows the number of hairs on our heads. That He knows when a bird falls from the sky. That He will feed us. That He will clothe us. He will care for us. And that we are living for another world, for the world which is our home. Help us, Lord, to walk through this life holding on to all that we have loosely. Help us to be a generous people, giving to the work of the ministry, giving to the needs of others. Help us to be open-hearted and open-handed for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. And help us to enjoy all that you have given us. To enjoy meals, to enjoy a community, and to enjoy the provision of this life. You are good to us. You are so gracious to us. We thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your provision. And thank you most of all that we can find our rest and our hope in Jesus. We love you, we thank you, and we pray in his name. Amen.